Okay. Um, thanks for being here. I'm recording, right? Okay. Thanks for being here. Uh, great turnout today. Uh, working with Global City Press and Review, and uh, their latest issue is uh, right at that table. I've uh, read it. It's, it's great. Um, we got a few of their contributors uh, re reading it. Um, I will close that door when we're done with this because that's pretty loud. Uh, that's yeah, that's louder than normal. Um, so yeah, we have today we have uh, David Puritz, uh, Taylor Hidlam, and uh, Amy Beach reading. Um, I like to read a little something to start things off uh, usually, and today, uh, being that it uh, seems like winter is in the air, uh, so to speak, uh, I wanted to pick something with that aesthetic. Um, so I, I picked one of my favorite pieces of writing, which is uh, the last few uh, paragraphs of The Dead uh, by James Joyce. Uh, so let me share that with you right now. Uh, the air of the room chilled his shoulders. He stretched himself cautiously along under the sheets and lay down beside his wife. One by one, they were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than wait than fade and wither dismally with age. He thought of how she who lay beside him had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he had told her that he did not wish to live. Generous tears filled Gabriel's eyes. He had never felt like that himself towards any woman, but he knew that such a feeling must be love. The tears gathered more thickly in his eyes, and in the partial darkness he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. Other forms were near. His soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hosts of the dead. He was conscious of, but could not apprehend, their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into a gray, impalpable world, the solid world itself, which these dead had one time reared and lived in, was dissolving and dwindling. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the Bogue of Allen and further westward, falling, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones on the spears of the little gate on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the, the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Thank you, James Joyce. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, welcome to the November edition of the Show Me Tell Reading Series. All right. Uh, David Puritz is the editorial director at Global City, an independent press that publishes the literary and cultural journal Global City Review and a growing list of other books and anthologies, including his own. As editorial director, he oversaw the relaunch of the journal and the publication of the newest online and print journal issues, Legacies. He is also the creator and founder of Burly Bird Zine. Birds, uh, birds, that's decent. Yeah, close enough, man. <laughs> I really gotta ask people that next time. 
last time before I would come up here. Uh, teaches writing at Shiva University in New York City, where he currently resides. His debut novel, The Escapist, of which he's reading uh, an excerpt, releases in January. Thanks for being Thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, purettes or purettes. Okay. I, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> cool. uh, so, yeah, I'm reading from chapter two of The Escapist. It's coming out at the end of January, and this is also the excerpt that was published in Legacies. At a table in the corner of the room of the old folks' home, a couple elders were playing what looked to be backgammon. Billy asked one of the orderlies where Gracie Shute was. She pointed to a woman bent over in a wheelchair facing the television. The view was blasting out of the TV. This was the show of choice for the orderlies, not the residents Billy knew. Most of the residents were invalids, he thought of them. Lost in their own minds, drooling out the sides of their mouths, sagging out of their wheelchairs, or their heads were flapped back as if looking into the sky. Eyes closed, or eyes open, but gone. He wondered what was running through their minds. Is it a dead silence, or are there still small, reverberating echoes that dance through these still bodies? Billy walked over to his grandmother and crouched on his knees in front of her, blocking her vision of the TV. Her eyes, though, had been facing elsewhere, slightly up and to the left. It seemed she didn't care for the view, either. Hi, Grandma. She was 79 years old, younger than most of the others, but she was just as wrinkled and lost, he thought. How long had it been since Billy had last seen her? Years upon years, no doubt. He just couldn't remember exactly when. She was there at home when he was growing up, and then she wasn't. Billy kissed her sagging, mildly hairy face. He sat down on a bench next to her. Hi! She was so excited to see him, or at least to have a visitor. He could have been anyone, and the response would have likely been the same. This unadulterated happiness, he thought. Why couldn't that have trickled down the goddamn family line? Her eyes lowered from Billy's and checked the name tag. Billy, shoot. It clicked. Grandson. And she got it. I was in the area and wanted to stop by and see you. Talk to you about some stuff. And make sure everything was alright. See if you needed anything. I'm alright. Same old. I'm feeling much better than I was. If you remember, I wasn't doing so good earlier. Her voice was high-pitched and she had developed a lisp because of her dentures. I actually never heard anything about it until yesterday. Uncle George told me about it. He said you had an accident coming off the elevator. Oh, George, I'll kill him. I didn't have an accident. Shirley pushed me into the door, the elevator door. Shirley? Who's Shirley? She pushed me into the elevator door? She pushed me right into the elevator door. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. So wonderful that you came to visit me. Tracy was talking to me about you. I think it's so wonderful that you came to see me. You kids have so much love in your hearts. We do, we thought. As she said this, she cupped her hand around Billy's cheek and stared deeply into his eyes. The moment came and went, and Billy felt nothing. No sense of nostalgia, no lump in the throat. But he recognized it was a genuine moment of affection. Grandma, can I talk to you about my dad? George, I'll kill him. No, Grandma, George is your other son, my uncle. I'm talking about my father, Alan, your older son, Alan. Alan, what a good boy. He worked so hard for his family. He does? Such a handsome man you turn out to be. We have such a beautiful family. Beautiful? Yeah, I guess we are an attractive bunch, thanks to you. We have you to thank for that. She gurgled a laugh, getting a kick out of this. 
And while she was basking in this grand sun beauty, an orderly walked in to give patients their medications, their body and or brain numbing formulas. Could be nice when you're that old, he thought. Turn it off. Shut the motherfucking thing off, all right. A flicker suddenly went off in his head. The tingling returned with forehead sweat and grinding of the teeth. The desire for drugs came flooding into his brain like 300 wood chimes being struck by the same gust of wind that got progressively louder as they got closer to him. The sweet music turning into a steady swelling of sound, and even the TV seemed louder, and Billy dropped to his knees and grabbed onto the armrest of his grandmother's wheelchair. His grandmother had, in some respects, a similar practice of ritualistic drugging as he had, and in many respects still sought. It was her routine Billy was seeing that brought him to his knees, even though months had elapsed since his own daily drugging rituals had slackened. They were at their most ceremonial during his reign at Coven Haskett back in New York. His workday at Coven Haskett would come to an end at the same time and in the same way as all his other days, with a final mail run through the building at 410, back to his desk at 445, and promptly out the back doors a few minutes later, unwilling to give them anything more than the eight hours of his day that he was contractually obligated to work. Billy would ride the M train across Manhattan to Astoria Boulevard. It was a short walk from the train stop to his one-room basement apartment. There would be only about half an hour of relaxation before he would start making his preparations. By half past six, latest, it would all be laid out in front of him on the coffee table, and then he would begin. On weekdays, he would smoke his pot, ingest multicolored opioid tablets, sip his whiskey, roll up his tobacco, and smoke that too. His weekend ritual usually involved harder drugs, and toward the end of his last stretch in the city, his MDMA PharmaConnect had disappeared, so he had to satisfy himself with more accessible substances. He used cocaine, but as one of his, as one of his PharmaConnects explained, if the South American climate was too cool and there wasn't enough moisture in the air, which had been happening more and more, the cocoa leaves couldn't flourish enough for proper benzo-methyl-ethylene-alkaloid extraction, leaving them in short supply. He'd resort to breaking up some amphetamines he obtained through simple prescriptions. He was prescribed Adderall, but also had easy access to Dexedrine and Ritalin, all of which were solutions Cynthia had found for her stepson's erratic behavior. And if you were to date it back, it could easily be said that Cynthia had Billy hooked before he reached double digits. Cynthia never considered how easy it would be for a young man to get his fingers on these Schedule twos. Billy had been overprescribed his whole life, and Alan had been quick to hand-feed him meds of his own, especially late at night when Cynthia was at work. It was at his boarding school in Mission Mountain Prep where he first tried heroin. During this ritual, Billy would sometimes bump 20 milligrams up his nose. If he was in a rush to leave the apartment or had plans to go somewhere, he would have upped the dosage to 30 milligrams. There were unidentifiable pills in orange pill bottles with black permanent marker on their labels. The chemical makeup of these were unclear, as the sources informed him they could have been ecstasy, or meth, or an MDA, MDMA variant, or a combination of sorts. That didn't stop him from taking them. He welcomed the surprising impact and relief. He would diagram out the properties of his narcotics and their effects onto sticky notes. They were placed on the right side of his coffee table in a rectangular formation, five by seven. A new collection had amassed, which charted out new effects when substances were combined. His last couple of weekends during the stretch consisted of his mystery ecstasy, Adderall, and alcohol, followed by large doses of Oxy later in the evening to help with the taper up. One of the sticky notes said, amphetamines absorption reduced with vitamin C citric liquids, less pH balance in stomach, stronger effect, 
tums to counteract for maximum possible absorption. Ecstasy, perhaps placebo, but still, I'm rolling. Part amph, part meth. His last weekend bender, while still under the employ of Coben Haskett, turned into a longer, duller weekend than most, with his narcotics withering within his bloodstream, and by Sunday morning, the high was still manipulating his sanity and his sense of right and wrong, though, oh so typically, the climax came and went, the best was gone, and he tumbled back into sobriety. His mind returned from its transformation. It returned from the state it was in before the drugs kicked in and turned him into something different, something of an existence he held of higher value than his unraped self. On weekends like these, Billy liked to disassemble the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that was his mind to explore potential identities, to maybe discover what he really wanted to be, what he could be, even if momentarily, to maybe discover how he wanted others to see him, to help him become something better. When sleep eventually would come, his dreams would spoil because of the toxins, but it was during this sleep that his transformation back to normalcy took place. The toxins would be ciphered into his colon for disposal, the influence squeezed out of his head. He would wake and look in the mirror, and for a split second he would see what he was and reminisce about what he had turned himself into. But sobriety would come crawling back, it always did. He would look in the mirror, and his lips would droop into a shaky frown, and his swollen eyes would squint yet again with that unmistakable sadness. For the remainder of those Sundays, he would fight the temptation to get up from the couch. He would lose himself in daytime programming and small midday amusements, such as watching his pet turtle, Speedy, continuously try to climb up the glass walls of his enclosure, only to fall upon his back and struggle to flip himself back over. Billy's grandmother was taking down her pills like a champ with what looked like chocolate milk in a styrofoam cup. Billy picked up the pill cup from her lap with an almost pre-programmed mechanical desire to find something, but alas, it was empty, and his early afternoon sobriety rolled on. Grandma's eyes started to trail, and her voice sounded groggy when she called him George and asked him for a cigarette. Grandma, it's me, Billy. When did you start smoking? Billy looked up at an orderly who was listening in on their conversation. The orderly's name tag read, Shirley. Billy mouthed to Shirley, cigarette? Great sugar, you don't smoke, Shirley said, tapping Grandma on the shoulder. I want my cigarettes. Shirley looked at Billy and shook her head with pursed lips. Billy had a vision of Shirley giving Grandma cigarettes on the down low. He thought, did Shirley make a secret agreement with Grandma that if she behaved and took her pills like a good little girl that she would be rewarded with cigarettes? Or is Grandma making the whole thing up and just forgot that she doesn't smoke? Her breath didn't smell of cigarettes. Her room didn't have the stench of cigarettes. Did she used to smoke cigarettes and was just always able to hide the truth from you? Or did she smell the cigarettes on you and some kind of transference occurred? Grandma looked at Billy's name tag and read the name. Billy! Hi, Grandma. He kissed her on the cheek. She placed her translucent hand on Billy's cheek as he held his lips to her for a few seconds. Her eyes were closed, and she was relishing this human contact. How's school, Billy? Grandma, I graduated from Mission Mountain years ago. I've been working in New York City. He again felt a need to keep the story going, that he was still living in New York, still employed at Coben Haskett, not in the middle of some escape act or rescue mission or something somewhere in between. New York City? You have to work real hard and you have to treat people with respect. People in New York are so rude. You should go back to school. You can never get enough education. Billy had considered it on a few occasions, had once even enrolled in a chemistry course at LaGuardia Community College after learning Coben Haskett would cover tuition costs, but he quit after just one day in the classroom. 
His cousin Greg, however, had taken his grandmother's advice to heart. But Greg never needed any guidance. He was George's son, destined to succeed. And Grandma played a big part in getting Peter, his brother, to stay at Tompkins High when he tried to drop out. She was a big influence on Alan and Cynthia in getting them to send Billy off to boarding school to Mission Mountain Prep after a terrible first year at Tompkins. She did it with the best of intentions, to protect Billy from his father, but also to try to protect his father from himself. One fell swoop. She had already seen the violence play out with her husband. Eventually, the importance of staying in school and the need for education became one of her topics on loop, and she would bring it up four more times during Billy's visit. I don't think I'm going down that road again for a while. I'm taking the summer off. Maybe find Dad. And out it came again. It still surprised him to be saying the words. Yeah, I guess try to retrace his steps since he ran off. Maybe bring him back home to Cynthia. Half a dozen residents now encircled them, more interest in their conversation than the TV now. Their faces looked anesthetized as they had previously, but Billy considered that underneath the zombie countenance, there was a humanity still. Billy turned back to his grandmother, who had a confused look with her turkey gobbler neck and wrinkled his raisin's skin, and then a frown locked upon her face. Perhaps Dad and ran off had thrown her a curveball. She looked at Billy's name tag. Then more confusion, then fluttering eyes, then quivering lips, then the waterworks. And then Billy realized that he now had to explain to his grandmother about his father's disappearance, running off with just the clothes on his back, as if it were the first time she had heard it. All the others lost memories. He wanted to get more from his grandmother before he left, any news about his father, clues to his whereabouts. Another part of him wanted to wait until pill time came around again, in case, just in case. And then when it would happen, perhaps he would watch the scene play out all over again, and feel the pain all over again, because he wanted to feel the pain, but also wanted to pull the drain and wash the pain away. Gracie talked about Alan, but the stories he guessed weren't actually about his father. There were blended anecdotes that could have been about numerous individuals all wrapped up into one. When a story sounded like it could have actually been about his father, one which seemed to fit his character decently well, Billy still couldn't be sure that it was his father that his grandmother was speaking of. She would break out at points into her stories with other names, and all of a sudden the stories wouldn't necessarily be about his father anymore, but about her deceased husband, or about Peter, or about George, or about Greg. Family even didn't stick even when they were the names of her own children and grandchildren. In the end, Billy gave up. But when he was leaving, he found Shirley in the hallway and asked if his father had happened to come by to see her. Oh, yeah, he did. How could I forget? It broke my heart. Shirley explained to Billy that Alan came here to tell her something, but it went right through her. In one ear and out the other, Shirley said. She can't retain the details, not anymore anyway. But I heard him saying goodbye forever to her, like he was never going to see her again. It wasn't the first time that Billy considered that his father had run off to kill himself. Maybe Grandma just wasn't willing to hear that Dad was saying his last goodbye, thought. Her brain wouldn't allow that piece of information to stick, so it was a memory she chose to disregard willingly. Or all control had already been lost, was already too far gone, the recent past wiped clean, uh, save for brief flashes like uh, flickering remnants of dreams. Did she actually know her husband was dead? That he had died more than 20 years ago? Did she consider her family her family, or was family just another term devoid of meaning? 
the extinction of day by previous day by previous days occurring at an exponential rate. When Billy was still sitting in the room with Gracie and she was in the middle of a possibly true, possibly not true story, she stopped talking, fell silent, turned away from him, and started weeping again. That was the end of the story she was telling. It was dead even before it started. But now there is a much more poignant story being told through what he was seeing. Billy considered that she was weeping because she knew how much was gone, was acutely aware of her condition in that moment, and that that was the cause of her breakdown. He considered that perhaps she was reliving some terrible day or some terrible moment from her past. He considered that she just needed to cry because of how hard it is to bear the reality of the world. He couldn't quite figure it out. It's tough to get a straight read on some of the Alzheimer's. But it made him quite sad because it made him think about how loved ones someday die and how you have to mourn them and that you have to mourn even those you thought you didn't love. It made him think about how he could end up like his grandmother, too, and get sucked into a vortex of having to mourn over and over and over again until forgetting what it even means to mourn, until forgetting the word mourn itself, until forgetting what any word transcribed to any feeling was, until there was no feeling at all, and then, maybe, hopefully, peace. It made him think about his father, and what about mourning him would feel like. It made him wonder if his own mourning process had already begun if it had been transpiring for years. Why do we only mourn the dead, he thought? Do we mourn for those that only feel dead to us? Do we mourn for those that we wish were dead? Billy collected his driver's license from the front desk. He headed back up east toward Baltimore, made another loop around Dundalk, and didn't stop to see Cynthia for a second time. But seeing the house again made him picture his brother as a boy. Peter will have answers, he thought. He always did. Let's see what he has to say now. No. Just keep driving. Just keep driving in the direction of forward. Billy's eyes kept drawing over to the cooler at the floor of the passenger seat, and finally, swiftly, he opened it and reached in with one hand while he kept the other on the wheel. After tossing a towel and a few water bottles onto the passenger seat, he shuffled around until he found the muscle relaxants. He popped open the bottle and poured the pills out into his hand, threw two down his throat. He reached into another bottle for the plastic bag that had his psilocybin caps. His eyes were darting from the road to the bag to the road and back. He put a few smallish mushroom caps into his mouth and methodically chewed the stale bits down to mush before washing it back. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that is very intense uh, and a fascinating character thought Billy and the situation. Um, so, I was uh, I was so struck by the specificness, specificity of Billy, especially the line referencing the drugs making him better. Uh, in a sense, I found that line that uh, his meticulous notation on his drug use, which if um, if anyone buys the journal, uh, there's this amazing uh, illustration of it, which I love incorporating an illustration into the prose of like these notes he's taking on what the drugs are doing to him. And, uh, I almost found it like a warped reflection of uh, Jimmy Gass's uh, exceptionalism in The Great Gatsby. Um, that idea of someone just taking these notes, except he's on a bender, you know, perpetual bender, instead of, you know, trying to be healthy or whatever Gatsby was into. Um, I don't know why I said healthy. Without revealing too much of your novel, uh, can you talk about your feelings regarding Billy? Uh, where, where you think he might come from in your uh, consciousness? And uh, how you developed this really unique 
character and voice. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, it was a long time coming. I mean, this book has been in the works for, for a long time. Um, I knew that I wanted to write a story about a writer. Um, that, that idea had been developing in my head for a long time. And I tried these different stories about writers. Um, I, I liked, I really liked metafiction and meta narration. So I was writing these these stories about fiction writers who were writing their own stories. And then, but it just didn't work. Audiences just couldn't connect to it. So I needed to, I needed to find a better way to, to just tell a, a clear story. So originally, uh, my character Billy was writing um, fiction, um, but his his real life writing, his writing about his own experiences ended up just being uh, a lot more interesting um, and it connected to the audience a lot more than, than his fiction. Um, so the, so all the fiction was, was cut from the book, so that, that caused me to kind of think about his character differently. Um, but, uh, but originally this character came to be because of a story that I wrote in college about identical twins and their um, and their terrible father who would do these uh, psychological experiments on them and who would like separate them and see if they could come back together like uh, so just you know it's really sick dad so instead of developing that story more I was like I'm gonna develop a story about some young writer who would tell such a story and that's kind of how Billy came to be um, and um, and then the rest of the story just kind of developed as I ke as I kept writing it. Um, but yeah, at the heart, it was it was about this young guy um, who was who, who had a pretty traumatic childhood, but whose father, who's a Iraq War vet, just kind of flees in the middle of the night, and Tim just kind of track trying to track him down. Yeah. And yeah, actually, uh, yeah, I was gonna ask um, about how long you you, you answered so yeah. well because it just seemed like getting to that level of specificity would probably take you know a lot of consideration. So when is this coming out? Yeah, so it comes out end of January, and I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, thank you for being here. Great. Good stuff. Yeah, really, the, the journal was such a great read. Um, I read it at the cafe on Halloween. Uh, and kind of just got lost in these stories. Uh, it, was, it was a really cool experience. I hate that sound. Oh, feedback, yeah. Um, so, uh, on to our second reader. Um, Taylor Huma uh, grew up in the Midwest and works as a digital media, media copywriter. His past creative pursuits include writing and directing two short films, uh, including one that premiered at the Anthology Film Archives in New York City. He graduated with an MFA in creative writing and is working on a novel series based on his graduate thesis. Uh, thanks for being here. Come on. A boy, a birthday, and baseball. At the time of my eighth birthday, my family lived in a suburb outside of Milwaukee. Our neighborhood was one of those booming up and coming areas where all the homes were built to look different from one another, but couldn't have been more alike. My house had a top of large hill across from the church we attended on Sundays. Many of my friends were part of the congregation and the service our parents forced us to sit through felt like the tax we had to pay for being able to play together afterward. Baseball was our passion back then. 
and the sport consumed us from the still melting snow in the spring to the crisp, cool autumn air. Nearly every summer day, my dad would hit dozens and dozens of balls to me from the time he finished work until the twilight sky shaded a touch too dark or my mother would yell at us for staying out too late. During those never-ending Midwestern evenings, I'd dive for catches and snatch blistering grounders in our backyard, all while pretending to be each player on the Brewers that season. B.J. Serhoff crouched behind the plate. Greg Brock, Greg, Greg Brock played first. Jim Gander was at second. Paul Molitor handled the hot corner. Dale Swain roamed shortstop. Rob Deere, Robin Yount, and Jeffrey Leonard patrolled the outfield. Teddy Hagera was the Brewers' starting ace and Dan Plezak closed out the games. It wasn't until late in the year that a brash 19-year-old shortstop by the name of Gary Sheffield got called to the bigs. He quickly became one of my favorite players, but it wasn't only because of his immense talent. Sheffield, who should be in the Hall of Fame, has initials GS plated in gold on his two front teeth, which seemed to be about the coolest thing a person can do. When you're older, Mom said, after I asked not to get that done. She still doesn't think I'm old enough. In addition to local brewers, my young fleeting family has also drifted out west that summer, as the Oakland A's had become the biggest, baddest, most fun thing I've ever seen on a diamond. The Bass Brothers dominated Major League Baseball in 88 with magazine covers, cheesy posters, and sports center highlights. Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire looked like muscle-bound baseball gods stepping up to the plate. Both were out of steroid users. The two took turns in batting order, crushing tape measure home runs with swag and arrogance, and after each tower and bomb out of the stadium, the sluggers had a routine of bashing their forearms together like tag team wrestlers. That summer, I saved my small weekly allowance by autographed baseball cards of the two, mounted on a wooden plaque from the local baseball card shop. Most Saturdays, my parents would drive me over to the strip mall across from the YMCA so that I could browse new arrivals of my favorite players and fantasize about someday owning the rare, expensive cards of Mantle, Williams, and Mays. I always left with a Packer to open to discover a new gem to add to my collection. The Bash Brothers plaque immediately became one of my most prized possessions and is displayed prominently in a trophy case with my other memorabilia. It also just so happened that season the Oakland A's were playing the Brewers in Milwaukee the day before I turned eight. And of course my parents got tickets. While living in Wisconsin, we moved to Iowa two years later, my family attended a, a dozen or so games each season. Because of my obsession for all things baseball, my mom and dad indulged me in a pregame ritual. Before the gates opened, as everyone else tailgated across the county stadium parking lot, grilling brats and lounging next to their RVs, we'd be in line hours before the first pitch. The moment the usher ripped my ticket in half, I moved as fast as my legs could carry me. I, I sprinted around the vendors selling programs and up the dank cement ramp until I laid eyes on the larger-than-life scene of major league ball players taking batting practice and shagging fly balls in the perfectly cut outfield grass. A thick sed the aroma of draft beer from the nearby Miller Brewery always invaded my nostrils at that point. My dad gave my first sip of beer at a baseball game. I think I was nine. 
My journey continued down the aisle, bypassing rows and rows of seats until I settled into a spot as close to the dugout as possible. This is my chance to yell, beg, and plead. Annoyingly, no doubt, for a personal memento of any kind. A signature, ball, batting love, anything that gave more of a connection to America's pastime. Occasionally, players made the short walk over to the young, adoring fans, some a bit older. Most of the time, they ignored us, strolling down the steps and into the tunnel without so much as a glance. I always staked out playing to the Brewers dugout on the first baseline. However, this night, I secured space on the opposing side of the field, searching and scouring for any recognizable players. I had just my glove with me, a blue, perfectly broken in bit that I used for practice with my dad and Little League team. But the unique color came back to haunt me. As I stood among the kids and adults near the ace dugout, Jose Canseco finished his BP session, and after a chorus of shouts, unexpectedly veered in our direction. At that age, it was surreal to see an idol of mine up close and in the flesh, with his flashy grin and imposing physique. He had the appearance of a come-to-life animated superhero. The steroids probably helped. Utterly starstruck, I didn't have a ball, and the thought of bringing a card of his design had never entered my mind. I mean, what were the odds? So I stuck out my glove in between the sea of bodies as far as I could reach. All of a sudden, I felt a slight pull. I let go, and my eyes just about fell out of their sockets as Canseco scribbled his signature on the mitt's middle finger. He placed the new souvenir back in my small hand, like he completed the most mundane of tasks, while at the same time giving me the happiest moment imaginable. But the bliss was relatively short-lived, as I looked at the newly minted autograph and realized Canseco had signed with blue ink. I squinted, bringing the glove closer to view. Two distinct thin ovals were diagonal from each other, forming a cursive J. The other three letters were scribbled illegibly behind. The C was overly slanted to the right, while the rest of his last name faded into an indistinguishable line. Like a raindrop laying in a puddle, the color of the glove nearly drowned out the signature as his name was about as faint as can be. Eventually, I placed that glove in the trophy case next to the plaque. Over the years, I showed off that autograph to my friends numerous times. They'd always ask, where is it? (laughs) (laughs) You just had to be there, I told them. Though as memorable as that moment was, that's not what I recall most, my eighth birthday. Coming into the game, for the sake of the AL MVP that year, was two steals short from becoming the first player in MLB history hit 40 home runs and still 40 bases in a single season. And in the very first inning, Canseco added to a stolen base tally by swiping second after a single throw. McGuire was up at the time and subsequently drove in two runs with the base hit to give Oakland an early two to nothing lead. That remained the score until the top of the fifth. Canseco led off the inning, surprising the Brewers infield by laying down a perfectly placed bunt and laying out a single. With McGuire in at the plate, Canseco took an extended lead off first. All eyes in the stadium run, anticipating the seminal moment in baseball history. The pitcher looked over, and the second he motioned for the windup, Canseco took off like a thoroughbred out of the game. Dirt from his cleats kicked up with each step, the throw from the Brewers catcher was late, and Canseco slid safely under the tag for his 40th steal 
of the season. The always hospitable Milwaukee fans cheered the accomplishment as he removed the base from the holder, raising it overhead in celebration. However, even with the autograph before the game and witnessed in baseball lower, the night was far from over. At the top of the seventh, the A's had a 4-2 lead when McGuire came up and crushed a solo home run and never wanted to be outdone, Consego did the same in the eighth, taking a 2-2 pitch from a Brewers reliever over the fence for a three-run bomb to push Oakland on top, eight to three. Other than use the bathroom a time or two, I don't think I'd move more than an inch as my focus zeroed in on every pitch, hit, and play. One day, I hoped that would be me. Odds of a little ear playing Major League Baseball, one in 3,376. The A's maintained their five-run lead, heading to the bottom of the ninth. Most of the home fans had, had already given up and made their way toward the exit, attempting to beat the traffic. My mom and dad promised we could stay until the very end. They soon came to regret this. With one out in the inning, two Brewer players singled back to back. The next player walked, and a throwing error allowed a runner to score from third, cutting the lead to four. Another walk loaded the bases, and then robbed here. A free-swinging slugger with the red-headed mullet and mustache injected new life into the remaining crowd, driving in two runs to make the score 8-6. to six. The Brewers' perspective comeback dim slightly after a strikeout, but that was just a momentary blip, as the next player stepped into the batter box and knocked in the seventh run with an RBI single. Milwaukee's last hope was designated hitter Joey Mark, and he quickly found himself down 0-2 in the count facing one of the greatest relievers of all time, Dennis Eckersley, the heavyset rookie Duggan. And much to my parents' dismay, he slapped a clutch base hit to right to send the game into extra innings. The Bash Brothers' home runs and the, along with the Brewers' comeback definitely added to my birthday experience. But what sticks out most of all came next. My family and I had been sitting in the upper deck along the first base side. I was at the end of the row next to Mom, and my brother had fallen asleep on Dad's lap. As the game moved into the 10th, 11th, and 12th innings, the clock finally struck midnight, and officially, it became my birthday. Up until that point, I couldn't have asked for a better night. Even if I'd been given another wish on top of all the wishes I'd already been granted, I wouldn't have known what to ask for. Except for the one thing that had always eluded me at a Major League Baseball game a foul ball. And lo and behold, in the bottom of the 13th inning, a right-handed batter, I, I can't remember who exactly, hit a high-arching shot that landed with a loud thud in the next section over. Not a single person was in the vicinity, and I took off like a dart, moving that direction with all the abandon I had in me. My heart raced in a way that I could barely breathe. The baseball rolled to a stop in the middle of the road two in front of mine. I peeled down the aisle and was met with an open lane for my final treasure. I propelled myself forward with a thrust and reached to place my palm on the threaded seams. But just as I began to raise the ball in celebration, a large menacing hand snatched it from my grasp. My eyes peered open, and a balding man with glasses and face full of beard held up the stolen memento. His chest puffed and belly jiggled as he fist pumped repeatedly with inebriated joy. Skipping back to a seat, the black 
racing could have used a sweatshirt he wore flat. Like a villainous cape, he enthusiastically high-fived his buddies while my newly turned eight-year-old emotional state completely prayed. Slowly, I shuffled back to my seat, fighting off a flood of tears. Dad yelled something at the guy, but my brother began to stir, and his attention turned back to him. Mom shouted something as well, but her focus was on making sure I was okay. I wasn't. Not even close. Discreetly, I pulled my brewer's cap over my eyes and lifted my glove to cover the rest of my crying face, trying to hide the hurt and forgetting all the good I experienced during the baseball game. Rather than be angry with the man, though, I recall being mostly upset with myself. I felt like I was the one who screwed up. I didn't want to believe any person could have that kind of power over me. Somehow, I wanted to have been stronger, move faster, or shield him from the ball in a way that could have made a difference. I was just too young and small to do a damn thing about it. Every Major League Baseball game I've attended since, for a brief moment, before the first at bat as the umpire dusts the dirt off home plate, I do the same with that birthday memory. Even after all these years, I can't help but put myself in the stadium and see that elusive ball underneath the red seat with the yellow foul pole and right field bleachers in the backdrop and wonder if this will be my chance to redeem the eight-year-old in me. Odds, one in 580. Thank you. Yeah, this is such a fun read for me because I'm a huge baseball person. And uh, the magic of foul balls, you know? Like, I, I was at a game once, a Yankees game at the old stadium, and uh, it was a blowout. I don't remember who was blowing out who. Um, and back then, you could go down to you know the lower levels, which you can't really do anymore, right? Because security is so tight, and they have like a giant moat between the box seats and the normal seats now. And uh, but yeah, back then you could do that. And I went like you know kind of behind home plate. I remember Kevin Euclid hit a foul ball, and I'm standing kind of in the tunnel. And like when you see a foul ball, like and you're at a game, it's it's like it found you among all these stuff. It's like it found me. It's so I, when, when I was a little leaguer, I, I played outfield. I tried transitioning to the outfield because I was too short to play first. I was never really good at it. And I used to take the drop step on fly ball, and um, I would just freeze. Like, you're supposed to drop step and immediately start moving. I, I would, like, freeze. And um, it's so funny because I was, like, you know, maybe, like, 25, 26 when this happened. And what do I do when that ball comes up? Drop step! As if I become like a 14 it's, it's a bit, it, it, that's your, your story. I totally took me back, exactly, it doesn't change. So, I, I mean, there was so much I, I loved about this, um, and kind of like the idea of uh, perf imperfection in the perfection, uh, all these amazing things happen, you get Conseco's autograph, but your glove is blue, and the brewers come back, but it's exhausting, it's an extra in a game, and you touch the foul ball, but not quite, you can't keep it. And um, while Rio, I was curious, um, if your love for the game has persisted uh, into into being an adult, and uh, if you've ever come close to catching uh, another foul ball, uh, if there was ever another close call. Well, in the, in the piece I mentioned that we moved to Iowa two years later, and then on the Major League Baseball team. Right. So I never really got the chance. I mean, I went through a few games after that, but once you move to a city or state that doesn't have a team, you lose that connection. Like, it's such a, a um, part of uh, a baseball team is a part of the city that like, you know, you're almost, you're part of the team as a fan. 
And when you're not that close to it, you sort of lose that connection over the years. So I haven't been able to sort of maintain that uh, uh, fandom that I never have come even close to another foul ball. Um, I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> It'll happen. It'll happen Someday. One day. Yeah. Um, so thank you. That was tremendous. Thank uh, you. Very, very, very fun. Um, so yeah, we're gonna take uh, about three, four minute break uh, before Amy Beach uh, closes the afternoon. But uh, take the time if you want to grab a drink or converse or, or anything like that, and uh, we'll
That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, hey. All right. I love, I love that guy. He's the best. That's fucking great. All right. So, um, yes, this has been great. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Another, another fun edition of the reading series. Um, Amy Beach uh, received her MFA from the City College of New York, uh, where she won the Doris Lippman Prize in Creative Writing. Uh, when not writing, she enjoys spending time with her husband and two-year-old son, and uh, she's reading an uh, excerpt uh, from a story that uh, appears in the latest Global City Press interview that's uh, tremendous. So, call on up, baby. Thanks, thanks for coming. Away. He remembered crouching under the desk in the bedroom. 
His mother had instructed Aditi to dress him for him and his visits, but he managed to skulk off before any attention was focused on him. His good shirt was lying on the bed freshly delivered by the Dobby Bala. The servant's bangles made a tinny sound as she squatted on the ground, sweeping the jadu to collect piles of dirt. Oh, monkey! Aditi playfully called as she stepped past the servant. Her toes peeked out from under the white sari as she stopped next to the desk. He inhaled the scent of coconut as she gently coaxed him up. Tell me the story of Hanuman, the monkey god, he pleaded as she unbuttoned his shirt. She put her finger to her lips and glanced over to the cradle where her sister Rose was sleeping. I will tonight. I'll tell you any story you want. Remember, only speak English with your mother and Mexican, she whispered. From the other room, he heard tea being offered, laughter from a stranger, and his mother's voice. Well, this hill station doesn't feel quite as official. Maltheron is hardly high society, his mother laughed. If you want fashionable, go to Mahapleshvar. The best will be in society. His mother's voice became louder as she walked into the bedroom. Alistair, stop following Aditi around. Come, sit with us, his mother called. He reluctantly stood, dragged his sandal feet to the sofa, and sat close to his mother. The woman was a friend of a friend who had secured a place for him at, at a London boarding school. She would be his contact in London, his mother explained. England will be an adjustment for you, his mother said to him. England was more than an adjustment. He was completely unprepared. He never learned to tie his shoes. He always went barefoot or wore sandals. He never had fish and chips, Yorkshire pudding, or seen rain besides the monsoon rains. And it wasn't just the weather or the isolation or eliteness of boarding school. Everyone looked the same with fair skin. They all ate the same bland foods and spoke the same incessant language. He concluded the British created class just to make themselves feel superior to each other to overcome the sameness. He did not identify as British nor did he want to when his grandfather declared, you're English. His childhood and identity had been nurtured on the plains of Bombay and in the jungles of Mataran. He felt more at ease in India than he ever did in England. It, was, it wasn't as though he felt like an outsider, though he was. It was the way everyone coexisted. Each group kept to themselves until they didn't. He read about the direct action day riots between the Muslims and the Hindus in Calcutta in August of 46, while sitting under the desk lamp in the boarding school library. The photos of the news magazines showed images of mutilated bodies and the streets and vultures perched on the wall. His father made it a point to send any clippings he could to discourage Alistair's romanticism from India. But each clipping and headline only made his resolve to return grow stronger. In the 10 years he'd been away at boarding school, he hadn't returned to India or seen his parents. Even if his family could have afforded the exorbitant cost to visit, the war made it nearly impossible. 
His mother sent one-page letters folded in his father's clippings with snippets of trite sayings and personal accounts. He wouldn't know either one of them any more than a stranger he met at the market. So when his father wrote a brief note saying the Indian Britain's presence and role in India was inevitable, and that he and his mother were returning, he had to reread the letter to process the magnitude of it. The name of the ship and their arrival date was written across the bottom. When they returned for good, their travel chests loaded in the car. They didn't even recognize him on the Heathrow platform. His mother walked past him. Well, I do miss the coolies now, she said. She wore fur over her shoulders, probably one she packed as a newlywed 18 years ago, with before she realized India was in the tropics, he thought to himself. Do you see Alistair? Her eyes followed the young boys running by. How's that? Did she think he was still a six-year-old boy? His father was already climbing into the car. Come, dear, he's at the hotel, I'm sure. We'll see him there. He moved at quick, confident steps. His hairline, he seemed most unchanged. His receding hairline was combed back. There were wisps of white hair by his ears. Mother? She turned to him, startled, and stared. Well, then you're not at the hotel, she said, with little intonation or emotion. It sounded like she'd have preferred he weren't there. He almost regretted his one-on-one -on -one with the headmaster to request the time to meet with them. They didn't know whether to hug, shake hands, or just stare at one another. She had bats in her eyes and looked tired. How was your journey? He asked. It was odd to see her without a topi or signature sun hat. He had a vivid memories of her leaning out the window yelling to a Dee Dee, Hat! He should wear his hat! No topi? He asked. I finally retired that wretched thing, she said. He thought of a Dee Dee often, even before his mother's sudden death. But afterwards, it was as though every thought flowed in one direction. Where was she? What happened to her? Why did his mother send her away? All his mother said about Aditi was, I survived the mosquitoes, yellow fever, snakes, and dysentery. I even survived the serpents. Before her death, she admitted British health could not compare to an Indian servant. It struck her how stuck he was. How stuck she was. She was involved. She lived in India, but completely disconnected from the people or the country. It, it was as though she could transplant her English violets and completely dismiss the Mogra or the Chameli or the Gmali who tended the garden or the Beshti who carried the water to the garden after he supplied the bathroom of the kitchen. Alistair knew he needed to return. When the Viceroy of India, Lord Mountbatten, announced Britain's new departure date and handover of power, his father was even more enraged by his declaration that he wanted to return after his graduation. What are you trying to do? His father asked the Walk into the middle of a civil war? What do you think? Why do you think? Lord Mountbatten 
push the data. No Englishman with any sense of common sense would go tripping back. What do you propose to do? Walk to the Indian Congress and ask Gandhi for a job? Why would they take a British man over their own? Every national is celebrating independence from you, the crown and 200 years of colonial rule. We're going to be chased out by nationalists with a machete. You don't want to see the world like his father did. An old man pining for an India he must subordinate and tolerate out of pretense. I'd like to look up my old man, indeed. His father scowled, accentuating the very eyebrows. The dirt on your mother's grave is still wet. And you're asking about Aditi? What happened to her? What's done is done. There's nothing to say. His father sighed and picked up the keys from the table. But it wasn't done. What was done was his father's pride. Alistair watched him pull on his boots for the night shift. His educated father who had worked with the pre-consul in India was mopping floors in Edinburgh. When his father said, there's no place for us in India, Alistair felt it was the other way around. His time in England was a great person. Time was holding still for him. He had grown up, he'd been educated, and followed in his father and his grandfather's path for him. Though they were civil servants and their jobs and roles had transitioned with India's independence, he would find his own path. He did not expect India to serve him. He would be a servant to India. To him, India was full of generosity and warmth. He missed the Hindu women in their colorful saris and their bangles, Sikhs in turbans and long beards, or Muslims in long hijabs and caps. The Muslims' call to prayer resonated with him as much as the bells on the bullock carts. There was a taste of water from the ceramic pot, the boiled buffalo milk, and the smell of burning wood from the hill stations. He preferred Matron's red soil to the English countryside. And indeed, he missed Adeed. In her presence, he felt the boyish urgency to stay close. As he stood over his mother's casket, Adeed was the mother of When he was 18, he boarded the ship back to India. His newly framed diploma hung over his father's desk in Edinburgh. He was now six feet tall, his leather Oxford, Oxfords had been resold, and he chose a set of china to bring as a gift for a deity, and spent as much time choosing the colorful bulldog wrapping paper as he did the china recalling her fondness of animals and bright colors. The majestic arch and turrets of the gateway of India seemed to glow in the sunlight as Alistair's boat entered the harbor. He inhaled the scent of ground spice and admired the intricate architecture of the beautiful Taj Mahal Hotel. Everything was on the cusp of change. He breathed in the salty swells of the ocean and felt invigorated. Bombay itself buzzed with the anticipation of India's new independence. Corner stands, sold independence paraphernalia and paper flags, 
saffron white and green saris lined the windows of the shops. Humidity enveloped him. Sweat dripped from his forehead. Aditi's village was outside of Bombay. How many times had he imagined the reunion with her? His childlike love had swelled into swirling dervishes of anticipation. There was her faint smile, her gentle voice, the sing-song way she called him monkey. Then there were the wonderful stories she told of her home and her village. While well, the way he collected his own stories, anecdotes from boarding school and of hiding in the unfinished tube station during the war raids. Standing in her remote village, he realized how removed from her life he had been. The staring image of her being dragged away had devastated him. How did it change her? own story and inserted her into it to placate his own gaping need for his mother. He stood awkward at the entrance of the small mud hut. It worried him. She had never answered his letters. But now he realized she had chosen not to write. She was a caregiver, not his mother. That's true. Seemed to be beaten in by the heavy mountains. A goat meandered past him. He saw a young woman on her hands and knees for a gobar or cow dung on the outer wall. Of course, it would be an auspicious thing to do, he thought. India's independence was a day away. Independence from you, he could hear his father's voice chastising in his head. She stood and gasped when she saw him. Daughter, a niece, a cousin, and a, a neighbor. Her blue sari slipped from her shoulder from rising so quickly. Sahi. I'm Alistair, he said. I'm looking for Didi. She, she was my eye for long ago. I, I wanted to see her again. He shifted her gift to the other hand as the goat tried to chew on the wrapping paper. The china seemed overdone, pompous next to the poverty around her. Adi? She frowned, shook her head, and said something he didn't understand. She signaled for him to wait as she wiped her hands, then covered with the remaining gobar. She led him down a dusty trail, past small huts. At the bend of the watering hole, a few women in the village were crouched between the top rafters, <coughs> wringing out their clothes. Was Aditi here? Tapa's children played in the water, and she eventually stopped at a bungalow near the main road. An elderly gentleman opened the door. Alistair recon recognized the thin undergarment of a sudra worn by the Parsons. The woman said something differentially to him, then pointed to Alistair. She's asked me to translate for you, the man said. I'm sorry, but the woman you are looking for is dead. Alistair gasped. He had already buried his mother before coming back home. Now his second mother 
The man stared at the gift in Alistair's hands. She says she was hung. Alistair trembled, wiping his eyes.
December 7th, uh, first area of each month. Uh, thanks again. Uh, enjoy. Uh, enjoy your Thank you.